Alright y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. Joshua Phillip, journalist at the Epic Times, is back by the woodpile again to discuss some historical events that affect our current times. Chiefly, we discuss the practice of Marxists hijacking religion for their own revolutions and their high art of disinformation in the West. But first off, Mr. Phillip explains how the Soviets went about, and the Chinese Communist Party still go about, weakening other countries particularly on the continents of South America and Africa, with the intent of eventually reducing them into puppet states for their own ends. Of course, you know, Africa had issues under colonialism. You could argue the effects of that. Technically, a lot of the places that were occupied under colonialism, at their height, they looked like first world countries. Of course, there were plenty of wrongdoings along the way, but uh, Africa was coming up. Africa did have a lot going for it. This changed during the, say, uprising of communist groups and movements. It started the, you know, guerrilla fighters, the uh, liberation front sponsored by the Soviet Union, different rebel groups fighting amongst themselves, even different communist factions fighting other communist factions. There's a great book called Disinformation by Ion Mihai Tchepa. He's the highest-ranking Soviet intelligence officer who defected to the West. He was Romanian, actually. It talks about a lot of these subversive actions taken by the Soviets. A lot of it was done through, say, financing of leaders, bringing, bringing different communist leaders to the Soviet Union for training, giving them money, weapons, guidance. A lot of them, you could say, acted autonomously based on, say, the, the same ideologies, but they were being supported by the Soviet Union. And this was, this was really the face of the Cold War, right? You had, say, guerrilla fighters and wars being fought in secret. Let's understand first the way that communist takeover of countries works. You're talking about ideological subversion. And so the first thing you do is demoralize the country. You have... You have different, say, communist leaders go in and start up grassroots movements. It could be nonprofits, it could be um, academics, it could be media organizations. They can get into these organizations, start putting out papers, start putting out articles. A lot of it's based on agitation propaganda. You want to agitate the public to to struggle against a targeted group, right? Under Adolf Hitler. He wanted them to struggle against the Jews, right? The Jews are the source of all your problems, you know, as he said. Under Lenin, it was the, uh, you know, the, the rich presence of the, the kulaks, right? People who were hoarding food, as he put it. Under Stalin, it was the counter-revolutionaries or, you know, the, the religious believers, the people who believed in the old ways, you know, so on and so on. All of them find a group. They want the broader population to struggle against because when you're willing to struggle against a certain group, you're willing to do things that are, say, immoral by normal moral standards. Of course, communism has killed a good somewhere around 100, 150 million people in the last 100 years, depending on which numbers you're looking at. And even then, of course, there's been no, no real solid count of it other than 
I think the best is uh, the Black Book of Communism, which is put out by, by Harvard, I believe, uh, which puts it at about 100 million. And so the first thing you do is demoralize. You break people's faith in the institutions. You start attacking their ideologies. You start attacking their traditional beliefs. Communist movements will then start looking at what are the values of this society? What are the traditions of this society? What are the inversions of those values and traditions? So they'll create social movements based on the inversions of the incumbent system. And they'll use those to attack and agitate the pre-existing, say, systems, beliefs, cultures of that country. I mean, this is based on uh, dialectical materialism. It's based on the ideas of the Hegelian dialectic, which was the concept that conflict leads forward, right? Based on communism's belief in, like, social evolution, they believe that manufacturing struggle drives forward the process of, say, social evolution, right? Survival of the fittest. And so they'll instigate conflicts, they'll instigate hatred, struggle, strife. They want, you know, women to struggle against men, men to struggle against women, children to struggle against their parents, uh, people to struggle against their, their bosses, bosses to struggle against the government, everyone to struggle against each other, right? This is how they manufacture, say, the revolution. This is how they slowly chip away at the, the structures that keep a society running. And so that's the demoralization state where they set this whole thing in motion. Demoralization moves to um, destabilization. You want the systems to stop functioning. You want the society itself to stop working. If it can't be done, say, through overt social struggle, you want to do it through subversion where you, break, you, know, you get your own people into, say, the police and you make the police corrupt. You get your own people into the religious institutions and you start preaching things that actually oppose the religions. So in Africa, Latin America... Well, more, more Latin America, for example, they manufactured uh, liberation theology, which was a reinterpretation of Catholicism that painted Jesus as a revolutionary, a communist revolutionary. And they said, you know, if you, if you oppose the revolution, then you're not a true Christian, right? This was their whole line. And so they used the infiltration of religion to push communism in Latin America, and that spread elsewhere as well. After you go through the destabilization process, you move to the state of conflict. You want there to be actual fighting in the streets. You want there to be violent revolution. You want groups to fight and kill each other. Or it can be done through, say, what we saw in communist China with say, things like the Cultural Revolution, where you have government-directed movements uh, of killing, of destruction, of directing, you know, children to report on their parents. You're directing the the people of the country to attack and kill each other, basically. Finally, you move to the state of what they call normalization. And normalization is when the values that were at first subversive become the accepted state of the society, where the, the values that were once uh, viewed as immoral are now considered normal. And this can be done either through the destruction of the culture, the destruction of the religion, or through the actual in, uh, creation of a full-blown, you know, communist government within the country. Communism, of course, isn't just some economic system like a lot of people think it is. It's, it is, according to the Communist Manifesto, it's a movement to destroy uh, belief, religion, uh, traditions, the, the idea of creating the communist man, right? You, you want a person who's cut off from all, all concepts of hierarchy and 
you know, tradition and control over your character. And so when applied to Africa, they, they use the same system. You could say that some of it was done maybe not directly. It wasn't Soviet troops going in and fighting necessarily, maybe in some places. But for the most part, it was done by guerrilla groups, uh, revolutionary fronts that they had Soviet backing or Soviet training. People supplied with Soviet weaponry, of course. The Kalishnikov has the, become the, uh, the image of the, the revolution, right? When, it, when a communist group goes into a country, they look for a group they can call the victimized class and a group they can call the victimizer. The victimizer is usually a minority, but, but is viewed as the incumbent power in that society. So it could be the landlords, could be the intellectuals. It could, you know, in Cambodia, for example, is the intellectuals. In China, at first, it was the landlords. Hitler, it was the Jews. So they controlled the banking systems and all this stuff. Africa, of course, it was the white man. So kill the white man, right? That was what they did. Of course, the problems that took place in Africa are the same problems that took place in every other communist country. You kill the people who bring wealth to the country. You bring, you kill the people who brought some kind of stability to the country, even if that stability was formed through dishonest means at first, maybe a hundred years ago or whatever. Suddenly the country is destabilized. And you have people who, say, seized those seats of power who have no idea how to use those seats of power. Communism often, like in most cases, after they killed off the incumbent powers, it led to, you know, famine. You had millions of people dying. Africa, it was absolutely destabilized. To this day, you still have guerrilla groups and, you know, fighting amongst themselves and local warlords fighting amongst themselves. I mean, of course, not everywhere, but this is what happened. look at South Africa before Mandela, it was a pretty decent place, actually. South Africa could have rivaled most European countries. It was, it was a nice place. Of course, Mandela was a terrorist. He was thrown in prison for it. He was called a you know, revolutionary and wrongfully in prison. Say what you will, his wife was a known terrorist. She had this way of killing people it was like with necklaces, as she called them, and she put tires around her necks, and she'd burn the tires and burn them alive. Mandela's revolution was purely racial. He wanted to kill the white man and overthrow the white man. Say what you will about colonialism. A lot of the Africanas, they had been in there, had families for a good long time by, by then. There was a genocide, of course, and unfortunately that genocide is, is viewed as something just. South Africa after Mandela has not been the same since. And of course, even now you're still having the the same issues taking place where people are being targeted based on their the color of their skin even though they are born and raised in Africa. Look at historical pictures of what South Africa was like before Mandela and then look at what uh, what has happened now. Then how did we in the West develop this image of Nelson Mandela as a man of peace and justice? You have to remember there were communist sympathizers in all parts of the world especially in the United States, even. In the United States, a lot of the communist groups were more in, like, entertainment, arts, academia. I mean, the framing of, say, Che Guevara as a revolutionary, this was, according to disinformation, according to Ian Mihaipacepa, that was actually done through Romania. Che Guevara was meant to be, he was supposed to be the one who would start the revolution in Latin America. He failed at it, he was killed. 
They went back to the drawing board and said, oh, well, what do we do now? Our, our guy was killed. Our main guy was killed. What they did was they turned him to, into a cultural icon, someone who would represent the image of the revolution. And so they used that to, to create this revolutionary identity. They did that, and then, of course, they started the whole movement of infiltrating the churches with liberation theology. You could say they did the same thing with Mandela. You have to remember, during the Cold War, you had journalists at major U.S. newspapers traveling to the Soviet Union and writing glowing articles about how, you know, their industry was flourishing and all these things. And, of course, the Soviet, you know, handlers who were guiding around were laughing inside because it was all smoke and mirrors. It was all fake. These journalists, they, they did a horrible disservice to the world by reporting, say, at face value, everything they were being told. The things they were being told were later revealed as false, but you don't see them going back and apologizing for it. it it's a Pavlov's dog kind of theory, right? You show people propaganda, even if the propaganda you show them is later proven false, they still have the emotional memory of how they've been conditioned to react to a certain image. And so you have a lot of these people who, even though they've seen the horrors of communism, even though they've seen, you know, 100 million people dead in the last 100 years, even though they've seen genocide, famine, gulags, they've seen failing economies, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Every single part of it is, is horrific that they still think it's good. And why is that? It's because they've been blinded by the, the surface-level propaganda and the talking points. And so they have this emotional attachment, this emotional memory, this Pavlonian, you know, ring a bell and you start salivating kind of issue where they, they're, they're salivating over this illusion that's been put in front of them. And so the media were partly to blame for this. The academia, you know, the academics were partly to blame for this. That was heavily done in the U.S. It was also done through Soviet disinformation. The effects are still carrying on. People still aren't clear about most of these things, I'd say. You know, the, the narrative of those who admit that Mandela started out as a radical is also that he mellowed out over time. How does that jive with the facts? Uh, he mellowed out after he finished what he wanted to, to accomplish. <laughs> you know, of course, you become dictator. What more do you need to do, right? You kill your enemies, you're done with, right? Yeah, you could say he mellowed out. You could say Hitler mellowed would have mellowed out if he finished killing all the Jews. You know, it's perception, right? I think you need to look at the, the track record of a person, not say how they were before they died. If Marxists developed liberation theology and Marx states that religion will have to end at some point, shouldn't that set off alarm bells for the Christians embracing it? If you go by Marxism, say, Communist Manifesto, Marx believed all this stuff would happen naturally. Marx believed religion would naturally collapse, that people, you know, people would naturally rebel against, say, the incumbent societies that you know, capitalism would naturally lead to socialism and that socialism would naturally create communism. Marx believed all this stuff would happen naturally. 
his beliefs did not come to pass. World War One happened, and the things Marx predicted didn't work. The workers of the world did not unite. The workers of the world fought for their kings and countries. Then Lenin came out and launched a communist, a forced communist revolution, not from late-stage capitalism, but from czarist feudalism. And it wasn't the proletariat against the bourgeois. It was the intelligentsia and the military against the incumbent government. And the first people they killed weren't the uh, bourgeois, it was the peasants. And so a lot of communists at the time went back to the drawing board and they said, well, Marx's ideas failed. What the heck is Lenin doing? I guess, I guess he established a communist system. Sure, he's preaching communist doctrine, but Marx's idea of how it would come about, all that was false. And so, of course, there were many reinterpretations of communism after the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, Mussolini made the fascisti, right? The the idea of the socialist collective and the getting people to react based purely on emotion, right? Go read Mussolini's doctrine. He was a full-blown communist, and he was probably the second most recognized socialist in all of Europe. Hitler built his ideologies off of Mussolini, right? Mussolini understood that nationalism was more of a unifying element than, say, the idea of, of communist revolution. And so he used that as his propaganda to unite people under his system. Look at his policies. It was purely communist. We didn't really see that fully implemented until he got control of Salo. Hitler built his ideologies based on Mussolini. But, of course, the German people were divided after the armistice. And so, you know, he went around preaching, pushing this idea of... Um, the, you know, the master race, the idea of the uh, the Aryan race, which which was already being popularized, which, which was based in the, the whole occult system, was already being popularized in Europe before then. Hitler just used an existing popular belief to implement his system. And if you look at Hitler's 25-point plan, it looks like something written by socialists today. It's state control of businesses, state control of healthcare, so on and so on. It's, it's all there. It's, purely socialist system. The point is, though, is that Marx's ideas of how communism would come about did not come to pass. The idea of violent revolution was something that they kind of came up with afterwards. Marx believed that this would all happen naturally. Although Marx did technically say, you know, workers of the world unite. Marx did try to instigate them to, to carry out the revolution. So when it came to the destruction of religion, they also understood this wouldn't happen naturally. And they also viewed religion, traditional values, as things that were inherently opposed to communism, that people wouldn't kill their neighbors or kill their landlords if they believed killing was wrong. They wouldn't engage in, say, the lewd sexual acts that communism was promoting, which is a whole pretty freaky history of that. If they believed in traditional marriage structures, that children wouldn't struggle against their elders if they believed in, say, respecting their elders. And so religion was a, a prime target for the to, for destruction in order to create communism. And so they started various movements. They started things to say th there was propaganda, disinformation, false information, you know, to attack the church, to attack the ideologies of religion, to try to frame religion as evil, to try to rewrite history, to make it appear in people's minds that religion is the cause of suffering, that religion is you know, the opiate of the masses and these things. Communism can't establish itself as long as religion exists, as long as people have some kind of foundation and moral values, communism can't spread. And so it was 
something they had to destroy if they wanted to accomplish what they wanted. Not only that, too, but even if they took over countries, it was usually the religious people who would fight back against them, say, wholeheartedly, because they believe in an afterlife. You can't control a people absolutely if they believe in a higher power, if they believe there's a power higher than government. And you also can't completely destroy culture and implement a new communist system of, say, the new world if people still believe in religious systems that go back, you know, thousands of years. And so they they used various methods. Liberation theology was the one they started to spread communism in Latin America. There's a lot of details on how this was done in the book I mentioned before, uh, Disinformation by Ian Mihai Pacheppa and, and co-authored by Ronald Reichlich. They also talk about how they infiltrated and subverted the Catholic Church. But liberation theology, you create preachers. Instead of having a communist going around and acting like a social activist, you have a communist going around acting like a preacher. He says, you know, Jesus overthrew the, the market. You know, Jesus went to the temple and throughout people committing usury wasn't, wasn't an anti-capitalism thing, right? And also people making profit off their religion. That's what he did. Usury, which communism fully engaged in with the whole uh, state-controlled banking system. But anyways, they, they, they portrayed Jesus as a revolutionary, as someone who was fighting the powers, right, who was stirring things up. They, they created a new narrative of him. He's this long-haired hippie, right, in their narrative. He, he wasn't some sage who, you know, came to understand religion. He was a, a hippie who wandered into the, into the woods or, you know, the desert and... Uh, came back and preached, you know, revolution and overthrow the incumbent powers, according to their narrative. I think people who've read the Bible know that that narrative is a bunch of nonsense, but most people don't read the Bible. So People become easily misled. They're, they're preached this new narrative. They're, they're taught this, this whole idea that getting into the kingdom of heaven is easier than they previously thought, that things that were considered immoral in traditional religion and the traditional system are no longer immoral. You can do them because God is more forgiving than was previously preached. Of course, the idea of forgiveness and salvation, this is one of the foundations of traditional Christianity. They enhanced that. They made it so that even after following the religion, commit whatever you wanted, and it didn't matter anymore because you were forgiven, you know, even going forward, that the idea that you should repent and try to improve yourself didn't matter so much. Yeah, but in spite of that, there's no forgiveness or redemption of the landowners or capitalists or whoever? Yeah, well, I mean, and that, that's the irony of it all, too, right? Thou shalt not kill unless it's a, the evil landlord class. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. this, this is what they did. Unfortunately, to liberation theology became extremely popular, spread through most of Latin America, um, and even spread through a lot of the black churches in the United States. I think Obama attended a uh, church that preached liberation theology. You can look into it. The current pope in the Vatican was a liberation theology school pope. He studied liberation theology, which is why I think a lot of people recognize, hey, is this guy communist? You know, is he, is he actually preaching here? He's preaching things that oppose the traditional values of the church. The things he's doing are based on liberation theology.
The infiltration of the church is something they did not just in Christianity. They used that method in pretty much all major religions. They did the same thing in China with Buddhism. They created the China Buddha Association. What they did was they first went into all the temples and they killed the priests or, you know, killed the, uh, the abbots. After they killed the abbots, they put their own people in place. And then they used the people they put in place to form the uh, China Buddha Association, which created then this communist-run, state-run version of Buddhism that was not traditional Buddhism. They did the same thing with the other religions. I mean, it's what they were trying to, trying to do to this day with Tibetan Buddhism, but because uh, the Dalai Lama escaped, they haven't been able to fully do it. So I'm just saying that it, was, it wasn't just Christianity they did this to. They, communism did this to all major religions in different forms. Even Islam. One of the founders of the Muslim Brotherhood, he was a socialist. He merged the ideas of socialism with the ideas of Sharia law and then used that to create a new system that would push for a communist government under the form of a religious government, under this theologist system, which he was one of the founders of the Muslim Brotherhood. And of course, Al-Qaeda was an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood based on not on the ideas that you should push it through government, which is what the Muslim Brotherhood does, but instead that you should push it through uh, violence and revolution, which was Al-Qaeda. And you can get into, as well, Yasser Arafat, Palestinian Liberation Front. Of course, these were Soviet-backed as well. Even Lenin, if you want to know the history of terrorism, Lenin himself, the Bolsheviks were a terrorist movement. They did assassinations, ambushes, they, you know, killings, robberies, all that. The picture is much broader than just, say, subversion of Christianity in the West. They, they did these, communism used these same methods and same basic, basic formula of destruction of culture and traditions in every, every place they went to. So I guess if Christianity, Islam, and Buddhism were corrupted by these infiltrations, did they get to Taoism as well? In a horrible way. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm like a former Taoist. I, I still kind of like really like Taoism. And it's a, it's a tragedy what they did to the Taoism. When the communists came in, they went to the different Taoist temples, different, you know, schools of Taoism. And, uh, you know, Taoists weren't allowed to, say, cut their beards or, you know, cut their hair. And so the communists forced them to shave their beards and, you know, cut their hair, forced them to go back into ordinary society and get jobs so they could no longer live the lives they were living before that. They destroyed the religion of Taoism. There was the cultivation side of it. There was the side of refining your character and practicing within the system. But there was also the deeper religious foundation, which was rooted in the Chinese culture. The belief in God, the belief in heaven, belief in, you know, karma and virtue. You know, you would suffer to repay your debts or be rewarded for your good deeds. All these things are rooted in the Chinese culture. After the Chinese Communist Party destroyed that element of the Chinese culture, a lot of what was left of the official religions no longer had that as well. And so they became like pseudo-atheist under the illusion of uh, religion. Zen Buddhism is, is like nihilism with meditation these days because this history was destroyed. And the same thing happened with Taoism, where it's become almost like a nihilistic system because people don't understand the religious tradition behind it. They just see it as following what's natural. They, they understand the surface element, but not the, not the heart of it these days because that foundation was destroyed by communism.
give us a brief history of the publication you work for, the Epic Times, and tell us why folks should check it out? Basically, the, the founder of Epic Times is a guy named John Tong. John Tong was, you know, back in the day when he was a student, he was a witness of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Of course, that was when Chinese students were protesting for democracy. It was around the time that the Soviet Union was collapsing. A lot of people, especially youth, who were living under communism, believed that they would see an end to communism, I think, very soon. And the idea of free market, of being able to rise up in society, of, of having freedoms of the West, this was something a lot of them wanted. And so a lot of the, a lot of the students in China went to go protest at Tiananmen Square, the Chinese Communist Party massacred them. It's interesting if you understand it from their perspective. For a lot of the Chinese youth, they had been taught all their lives that the Chinese Communist Party is your father, that the Chinese Communist Party would never hurt you. They have the whole reframing of history, this whole, they have a, you know, slogan classes in school where you're, you're taught to re, you know, repeat slogans glorifying the party. A lot of them believed a lot of this. And when the Chinese Communist Party killed them, when they saw it, you know, these communist soldiers shooting their friends, that that whole world just disappeared. Their, the whole foundation of their reality was, was shattered. When John Tung saw this, he, of course, I think for him it was very similar to that, and uh, he left and he came to the United States, became a U.S. citizen, went to school here. And I, I think him, like a lot of Chinese, just wanted to kind of move on with their lives. I mean, I can't say all of them. A lot of them, they don't really care to look back. And you find that with a lot of groups who have been persecuted in the countries they come from. So, long story short, in 1999, say something happened in China. The Chinese Communist Party started persecuting Falun Gong. Falun Gong is like, it's also called Falun Dafa. It's based in, say, the older religious systems of China. It's based in the idea of refinement of your character. It's not, not technically a religion by Chinese standards. You could say it's a religion by Western standards. The focus is on, say, you know, people maybe go to the park in the mornings and exercise and, you know, live, you know, work, whatever, nothing else other than that. But they will try to look inside themselves during conflicts and try to find what their own shortcomings are and improve themselves. And this is part of the, say, traditional Chinese system of, Shulian or self-cultivation where you're, you're trying to elevate your character. And so Falun Gong was a revival of that tradition in China. It was based in the three principles of Zhen Shanren. Zhen is like the Buddhist element. It's truth, or, or, sorry, kindness, compassion, thinking of others before yourself. Zhen is like the Taoist system. It's truth or being, you know, following what's natural, being a true person. Ren is like forbearance, the ability to endure hardship, uh, to not be moved by things. What happened was, though, by 1999, Falun Gong was practiced by somewhere between 70 and 100 million Chinese people. Um, the Chinese Communist Party declared it was a threat to the atheistic rule of the Communist Party, and they set out to destroy it. The only person who wanted to persecute it was Jiang Zemin, who was then the head of the Chinese Communist Party. Even other members of the Politburo Standing Committee didn't want to persecute it. Uh, Jiang Zemin said, find a reason to persecute it, because they didn't have one. They looked, they couldn't find anything wrong with it, and he said, manufacture a reason. And so they manufactured false events, uh, you know, false flag events, 
they manufactured, say they pay murderers to admit, you know, to say that, oh, I did it because I practiced Falun Gong and, you know, then they get off, they get off the hook for their crimes, these kinds of things. I mean, a lot, most of it's been debunked by now, but at the time, the Chinese Communist Party was broadcasting this kind of propaganda 24-7. You could not hear anything else on the TV. Then all the Western media started repeating everything the Chinese media was saying. They, there was no other source of information in China. Actually, on that note, there were some major news outlets that did end up interviewing some Falun Gong practitioners and got the other side of the story. So there were a couple reports on that. But afterwards, the Chinese Communist Party killed those, those people they interviewed. And so when all this was taking place, there were Chinese Americans you know, living here, and they were horrified by it. And they said, how can there be an entire how, – how can there not be a single – honest media in our country? How can there not be a single media that's willing to give an accurate picture of what's taking place in China? And so they decided to create one, and that was the Epic Times. And uh, we're now yeah, now pretty big. I work for the English edition. We're in 35 countries, 23 languages, a uh, daily paper in New York and Washington, uh, Chinese editions daily. I mean, I mean we still have, say, the same basic foundation. We really do try to uphold good values of traditional journalism. Yeah, one thing I can commend y'all on is that the Epic Times is not just solely concerned with the persecution of Falun Gong, but also the plight of other faiths. Yeah, we. Um, I've written about all all sorts of things. I wrote. I did a big couple articles on the genocide of Christians in uh, the Middle East right now, which is. It's actually classified as a genocide, but you don't hear any media talking about it. I've written about, of course, persecution of house Christians in China, persecution of uh, Muslim Uyghurs in China, Tibetan Buddhists. You know, of course, we're not just focused on human rights. We, we, we focus a lot, too, on traditional culture, traditional values. We do a lot of investigative journalism on politics and news in the West. We're nonpartisan, but we are traditionally minded, I guess you could say. And so we do we do cover things from the standpoint of, of traditional values, which I guess comes off as more conservative. We don't align with Republican or Democrat, but we do believe in our analysis that the media has been incredibly dishonest about Trump. And so if you read our content, we have a very different narrative on Trump's administration as well. Okay, speaking of Mr. Trump, in regards to human rights or dealing with China, is he doing the right thing, in your opinion? Yeah, I think he's the first to do the right thing. Uh, Pence is, of course, very big on the persecution of uh, Christians, and uh, he has kind of tied that into the persecution of religions overall. They're actually standing up to China, which even though I'd say people, a lot of leaders in the past, they've kind of done that on the surface, it was mostly just hollow words. You know, Bill Clinton went to China and gave them most favored nation trading status, brought them into the World Trade Organization. On the surface, that was done with the belief that China would improve its human rights issues over time. But it didn't create any requirements. It, there, was no, there were no standards. And so China had no incentive to do so. Not, so not only did they not improve their human rights, but they got even worse. Uh, you know, Obama kind of had this do-what-you-will kind of mentality with them. They didn't. Yeah, of course, he, he did indict five Chinese hackers for economic theft, but in terms of standing up for abuse of religion, 
it was non-existent as far as we saw. This is the state things have been in. You, you, you know, a lot of academics, a lot of media, you, you don't hear about these kinds of uses taking place in China, for example. Not because it's not happening, but because China will kick you out of the country and cancel your visa if you talk about it. You get blacklisted. Media and academics don't talk about it because they want to continue their work. And so it, it creates this illusion that these issues don't exist or that they're not that big of a deal. But look, the, the persecution of Falun Gong by itself is 100 million people. That's, that's about one-fifth of the country, or sorry, one-fifteenth of the country. And not to mention how many of them have friends and family. The Christians in China, there's also about 100 million of them now, and they're also being persecuted. Two-fifteenths of a country, 200 million people being persecuted, not including the other religions, and you don't hear people, for, you, you don't hear anything about it in the media. Well, you know, why is that? And so, yeah, Trump has actually been willing to stand up to them, and he's not getting the recognition for doing that, and I don't know why. That does it for now, but if you'd like to hear more of Mr. Philip, you can hear our first conversation together on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile 142. Or if you'd like another take from another practitioner of Falun Gong, you can listen to episode 81. Or if you'd like to hear an account of South Africa during and after the days of apartheid by folks who actually lived there, check out in the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 105. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, it's produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. And you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean.com. We'll see you on the flip side.